mentioned last week Genesis 1. Genesis 1, the very beginning of the Bible, starts out with this love poem to the universe, this creation poem that sets into uh, this initial rhythm uh, that is creation. So I'm just going to read a little bit of this um, uh, from this poem, and I'm going to be reading in the message. God spoke, earth, generate life, every sort and kind, cattles, reptiles, wild animals, all kinds. And there it was, wild animals of every kind, cattle of all kinds, every sort of reptile and bug. And God, God, God saw that it was good. God spoke, let us make human beings in our image, make them reflecting our nature so that they can be responsible for the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the cattle, yes, the earth itself, every animal that moves on the face of the earth. God created human beings. God created them God-like, reflecting God's nature. He created them male and female. God blessed them, prosper, reproduce, fill the earth, take charge, be responsible for fish in the sea, birds in the air, for every living thing that moves on the face of the earth. Then God said, I have given you every sort of seed-bearing plant on earth, every kind of fruit-bearing tree, given them, given them to you for food, to all animals and all birds, everything that moves and breathes, I give you whatever grows out of the ground for food. And there it was. God looked over everything God had made and said it was good, very good. It was evening, it was morning, day six. So this poem uh, comes to us uh, in the context of the Israelites being rescued from Egypt. So the Israelites have been slaves in Egypt for generations. Nothing but brick-making and back-breaking labor, slave labor. And they are rescued from Egypt. They go into the wilderness. And these stories that the Israelites start to tell themselves and start to tell their communities— It's a remembering, a remembering within the community of who God created them to be. It's an alternative narrative to the the narrative of domination and enslavement that they had known for so long. It communicates to the Israelites that despite their oppression, despite their suffering, they were not created to be slaves. They were created for a rhythm of care, rest, intention within the world that God calls good. One of the most profound and clear examples of this rhythm that the Israelites work themselves into as a community is the rhythm of Sabbath, right? It's, I think, a clear example of a distinctly ecological narrative or ecological rhythm that we see, um, and it can be the most countercultural practice for us to engage in, to better care and love for our creation, our environment, and then ourselves. (laughs) I was at Starbucks. I hang out at Starbucks down the street way too much. They know me too well over there. They draw like little faces on my cups because they know me so well over there. So I was at Starbucks this week, and many of you know I'm a judgmental person. I'm working through that. But I am a people watcher. And I witnessed a fundamental Bible study at Starbucks. Um, And this group was talking about the Sabbath. 
And they were talking about how the Sabbath was created to please the Heavenly Father. And they kept saying Heavenly Father. I'm like, oh, male pronoun, male language for God already disturbs me. But uh, they kept saying that the Sabbath was there to, to please God and the Heavenly Father. But they didn't say anything about what the Sabbath is actually there for, right? It was just, they were trying to figure out in the box of how to cut out a day, like cut out a sliver of like Sunday to like go to church. So for them, the Sabbath, in their whole conversation that I was eavesdropping on with my headphones on, like pretending I was listening to music, uh, was the fact that being a good Christian was going to church on Sunday. And I'm glad that all of you are here. That's fine. But being a good Christian has nothing to do with coming here on a Sunday. It just doesn't. Uh, The Sabbath has nothing to do. I mean, that's fine if you come to church. I come to church. Um, But they were trying to box in the Sabbath all about just going to church on a Sunday and to please God. It's just wacko, okay? It's just crazy, all right? The Sabbath was created to restore a rhythm at the very foundation of how creation works. It's a spiritual but also like fundamental reality to how we should understand and reorient our lives toward ourselves, God, and all created things. And we do that from a number of ways. It's, like we said, it's proposing an alternative narrative to the dominant one of culture. So for the Israelites coming out of Egypt, it was opposing the narrative of slavery. They have only known a life of slavery, and this narrative of rest, Sabbath, and renewal is posing a radically alternative way of being in the world. And so we have to ask ourselves those same type of questions. What does rest and renewal and restoration look like today? And that's how we we, uh, get at the heart of um, Sabbath and then how we can understand it in an ecological perspective and how it restores a right relationship with all of creation. Okay, off soapbox. Uh, um, so in a world of consumption, constant Amazon deliveries, uh, large-scale environmental degradation, um, the Sabbath is a gentle reminder that we are called to life and breath, peace and rest within the created life. Uh, It's an alternative system to not only the one of uh, the people in the biblical narrative find themselves in, uh, but our current enslavement to success, production, consumption, and capitalism. Uh, We want to gain control. Everything we do in our lives generally is to, to sort of gain control over our lives, but the Sabbath reminds us that everything in life is a gift. We own nothing. Who of us is going to take anything with us when we die? No, we, got, we got nothing. Abraham Joshua Heschel says, The Sabbath day is a day on which we learn the art of surpassing civilization. Sabbath is the day on which we learn the art of surpassing civilization, meaning there is a deeper level to life than production and consumption. In Exodus, the Sabbath rules extend to all of creation. So, uh, oh, I don't even have the chapter here. I think it's Exodus. Oh, I don't even know what I want. Exodus. What, what is the Sabbath rules, in, in Bob, in Exodus? Anyways, I don't have the chapter, but in Exodus. Um, I just have the quote here. 
These are the Sabbath rules. Don't take advantage of the stranger. You know what it's like to be a stranger. You were strangers in Egypt. Sow your land for six years and gather in its crops. But the seventh year, leave it alone and give it rest so that your poor may eat from it. What they leave, let the wildlife have. Do the same with your vineyards and olive groves. Work for six days and rest the seventh so your ox and donkey may rest and your servant and migrant workers may have time to get their needed rest. Isn't that so fascinating that the Sabbath rules pertain to even allowing your animals to rest, allow the land to rest, allow your animals to rest. Um, You know, be kind to the stranger, be kind to the immigrant, be kind to that person who's been suffering under oppression. You know what it was like to suffer in Egypt. It's posing this alternative narrative. Uh, Let the land rest. And then it says, even, uh, you know, let your migrant, let your servant uh, rest on the seventh day. There's this rhythm for how God desires to establish our being in the world and being in relationship with creation and and each other. Um, It has political, economic, social, ecological implications. It has implications for everything that we do. Care for the stranger. Care for the soil. Care for the poor. Care for the animals, care for your employees, care for yourself. They're all interrelated. You can't have one without the other. So what rhythms dictate your life in your week? What rhythms dictate your life in your week? I think we have to re-understand our life in our rhythm in today's world. Uh, Jesus also opposed the rhythms and systems of his day. The Roman Empire, the religious system. Uh, There's this great line in John 18 where Jesus says, My kingdom doesn't originate from this world. Some translations say, My kingdom is not of this world. Has anybody heard this verse before? My kingdom does not originate from this world. If it did, my guards would fight so that I wouldn't have been arrested by the Jewish leaders. My kingdom isn't from here. Now, what Jesus is not saying is my kingdom isn't of this world, like earth. That word, um, world is the word cosmos in Greek. Cosmos. Um, What he's saying is my kingdom is not of this system. My kingdom is not of this narrative of domination and oppression. My kingdom is not of this world. He's not talking about creation. That's a verse I think has been used to say something like, my kingdom is not of this planet. My kingdom is of some heavenly place that's far off. That's not what this is saying. He's saying my kingdom is not of the system of domination, oppression, and suffering. My kingdom is not of this system. Jesus offers an alternative system of nonviolence, peacemaking that flows from God's original command to care for the poor, care for the soil, care for the animals, and care for creation. I think we can also understand this relationship better uh, by looking at the uh, story of the Good Samaritan. It's probably one of the most well-known stories in the whole Bible. Um, 
in even in, in secular culture, it's a it's a really common story. I think it's in the bulletin this week. So if you want to follow along, I'm just going to read this whole block. Just then, a religion scholar stood up with a question to test Jesus. Teacher, what do I need to do to get eternal life? And he answered, what's written in God's law? How do you interpret it? He said that you love, your, love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and muscle and intelligence, and that you love your neighbor as well as you love yourself. Good answer, said Jesus. Do it, and you'll live. So this guy gives the right answer, right? Absolutely knocks it out of the park. Kills it. Perfect answer. Verse 30. Or, yeah, verse 29. Looking for a loophole, he asked, and just how would you define neighbor? Jesus answered by telling a story. There was once a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and on the way he was attacked by robbers. They took his clothes, beat him up, and went, went off, leaving him half dead. Luckily, a priest was on his way down the same road. But when he saw him, angled across on the other side. Uh, when he saw him, he angled across on the other side. Then a Levite, religious man, showed up, but he also avoided the injured man. A Samaritan traveling on the same road came on him. When he saw that the man, when he saw the man's condition, his heart went out to him. He gave him first aid, disinfecting and bandaging his wounds. Then he lifted him up onto his donkey, led him to an inn, and made him comfortable. In the morning, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take good care of him. If it costs any more, put it on my bill. I'll pay you on my way back. What do you think? Which of the, which of the three became a neighbor to the man attacked by robbers? The one who treated him kindly the religion scholar responded. And Jesus said, go and do the same. Yeah. Yes. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, uh, I just read from the message translation. Sometimes I like reading from the message translation uh, because it, it can be a bit uh, more poetic. And sometimes it can rate, sometimes we're conditioned to, to hear certain language that we're familiar with, and the message can kind of, I think, draw us out and hear the story new. Um, So God is Green, we've been talking about this theme, and there's actually a book um, called God is Green um, by a guy named Robert Shorgross. Sorry, Robert, if you're listening, I apologize for butchering your name. He he probably listens to this online. Um, So Robert wrote this book, and he's actually from North Hollywood, right? And a professor at CSUN? Is he teach at CSUN? No? All right. I don't know about anything about Robert, but he has this great, um, he has this great piece in his book uh, talking about the the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, And I'm just going to, I'm just going to read this a little bit because, um, it's, it's really pretty, pretty good. Uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan is an incisive critique of the daily life shaped by the politics of holiness or purity codes. The man robbed half dead gives the ambiguity that the Levite and the priest perceive the man left on the side of the road as dead. Dead bodies are considered unclean and highly contagious. The priest and Levite pass the body without investigating whether he was dead or not. They represent the heart of the purity system. It is, it is the compassionate Samaritan 
an unclean outsider and cultural enemy that stomps to care for the beaten man, placing him on his mount and bringing him to an inn and paying for his... uh, I can't even read that word. It's blurred. Paying for his services. Um, The outsider breaks the purity boundaries out of compassion. Jesus' parable interrupts the purity system. Again, the inside of Scott is incarnated here. God is unclean, breaking human categories. Last week, we talked about um, Christianity um, being a profound religion. I mean, a a profane religion. It is profound, but it's profane. Uh, That meaning outside of the temple, in front of the temple. So I love here that he gets at uh, the fact that the religious officials, the priests and the Levite, they don't stop because of the system, right? They, they don't stop because their purity system says that they shouldn't stop. What types of systems keep us bound to certain ways of living? The law, right? Well, I, and even, even beyond that, there's a lot that we don't question in the way that we live, because that's just how we were raised, or our culture, or um, how our family lives in the world, and we don't even question it. So here, you have two religious officials that are doing the right thing, but they're doing the wrong thing. I think our purity system, um, one of them, is consumer capitalism. We don't question this industry and system that dictates almost every aspect of our lives. We just participate. We just throw stuff in the bank. We buy stuff on Amazon. We, um, you know, so last week I talked about uh, the fossil fuel industry, which I absolutely loathe. I had an international law class when I was an undergrad, and we talked about how uh, Shell gasoline would, um, they would actually pay people in African countries. My professor was an international lawyer, and she would go over to Africa and defend um, small communities of people that had been um, abused and pillaged by large oil companies. And one of them was Shell Gasoline, right? I saw a great commercial about Shell being, I don't know, some bastion of, like, morality on, on TV the other day. It was like a commercial, and it's just crazy. Um, so Shell is actually, uh, they, would, they pay um, basically like military, uh, you know, like paramilitary forces to go in and pillage uh, rural villages in order to wipe them off the map and then steal their land. Um, and she would defend these, um, these uh, small groups of people that were oppressed. Um, and so there was a, this is t- totally on, I was not planning on talking about this. Um, so there was a shell gasoline right, right on uh, the corner of Baylor's campus. And it just so happened during the semester to, to go under and close. So we threw a party on the grounds of the shell gasoline station that had closed uh, during the semester that we were taking that class. And we threw this big party for the shell gasoline station closing. Um, all that being said, I was looking at my little, like, Capital One app you know, this week. And Andrea and I's, I noticed the three most recent pur- purchases, purchases of those three, the two most recent ones were Shell Gasoline, right? That we all participate in the system of oppression, right? It's, we participate in this whole thing. And if God is green, 
then God's people have to start proposing an alternative narrative and way of being in the world. And that's a, that's a lifelong journey, right? It's something that we, ne- we never make it there. But this is where we're going, and this is where, how we are called to live. So the purity system that pre- prevents the, the priest and Levite from stopping on the side of the road to help a dying man is a part of the same system that prevents us from questioning how that precious gas that got into our car, that got us all here, how it was produced. How, how did that gas come to be? How did it get transported? How did it get to the Sinclair station on the road? to get the cheapest prices over there. Or where the bacon that you ate this morning actually came from. Where did it come from? We don't know. We're very distant from that like nice uh, package that we find in the grocery store. Uh, they don't stop on the road because they are all good participants in the system. Participants in the system. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this system. In this story, Jesus offers a most unlikely person, the Samaritan, the enemy of enemies. So Jesus alt, you know, gives this alternate system, this alternate narrative, led by the outsiders, led by the unlikely character. And this alternative kingdom is one of risky love. Risky love. And I think we've made a mistake uh, to assume that this story uh, only understands uh, neighborly love as a person-to-person relationship and not our relationship with all creation. The kingdom that Jesus is enacting is one of mutual love and right relationship through the radical nonviolence towards all of creation, the environment and people. So who is my neighbor? If we are called to love even our perceived enemies, how do we reorient our lives within this system that we all find ourselves in toward nonviolence against the forces of oppression, against the forces of environmental subjugation? Because like our text that we read in Exodus shows, it's all connected. The economic, the social, the political, our care for the poor and our care for the environment are one and the same. Sometimes we hear, or sometimes I hear, uh, was it fiscally conservative, socially liberal, right? Fiscally conservative. It's all connected. It's all connected. How many times have we passed by on the road... Mother Earth, bruised and beaten, because that's just part of the system. That's just how we live. Two-thirds of the pollution driving climate change is from burning fossil fuels, coal, oil, natural gas. Californians use 1,500 gallons of water a day per person. 1,500, I don't know if that one's up there, but 1,500 gallons a day per person. Half is associated with the meat and dairy that we eat. It, it costs, it uses, we use 2,500 gallons of water 
to produce one pound of beef. 2,500 gallons for that burger at McDonald's, 2,500 gallons of water are used to get that one pound of beef. I mean, that's a big burger, but, you know, I've been there. I've eaten a pound of beef. I used to, in high school and college, I would go through the drive-thru at Wendy's because they would have the, the uh, bake, junior bacon cheeseburgers for 99 cents, and I'd order five of those things. Five dollars, five junior bacon cheeseburgers, boom, I'm good, right? It's a lot of water. <laughs> Uh, Animal agriculture is responsible for 18% of greenhouse gas emissions, more than the combined exhaust from all transportation worldwide. Just animal agriculture. Um, Livestock and their byproducts account for 51% of all global greenhouse gas emissions. Just livestock, half. Uh, 55% of the water used in the U.S. is for animal agriculture. Gone. Half of the water. Just used for animal agriculture. Um, Just to run through, animal agriculture is responsible for 91% of all Amazon destruction, so deforestation. And if just one person doesn't eat meat for a day, if just one person doesn't eat meat for a day, you save, on average, 1,000 gallons of water, 45 pounds of grain, 30 square feet of forested land, and 20 pounds of CO2 equivalency. If you just don't eat meat for a day. If the entire U.S. didn't eat meat for one day, it would be like taking 91 billion driving miles off the road. If, if we didn't eat meat yesterday or tomorrow, which won't happen because it's Labor Day, <laughs> uh, it would be like saving uh, 7.6 It'd be taking 7.6 million cars off the road if we didn't eat meat tomorrow. 7.6 million cars off the road. Now, I'm not saying you have to go home and throw out all that deli turkey meat. But what systems do we participate in without giving them a second thought? Just because that's the world we live in just because there's a Burger King on the side of the road, and that's just where I eat on Tuesdays. What systems do we participate in, and where does that food come from? Where does that gas come from? Where does uh, the energy that powers uh, this building come from? One of the things that we're, we've been working hard this year doing is trying to uh, provide our own electricity here. And so we've been on this journey uh, Bob and I have been, have been working hard with uh, companies to try to get solar power on all of our facilities uh, so that we can not only care for the environment, we can save money, and that we can uh, set an example that God is green. And it'll say it in big solar panels on our building, <laughs> that we are green. And not because, uh, you know, we're trying to save Colin the chicken, Uh, But because this stuff really matters, how we live in the world really matters. And small acts, whether it's um, not driving and riding your bike, whether it's putting solar panels on your uh, church, whether it's, uh, you know, not eating meat on a Monday, all these little things matter. And what really, uh, what we really mean by God is green is Jesus is calling us into an alternate way of living in the world. 
the early Christians uh, didn't even consider themselves Christians. They considered themselves part of a small movement of people, and they called themselves the way. Because it, it, it mattered in their lives the way they lived. And so as Christians today in 2018, it matters how we live. You know, what, what way are we called into? What narratives are we telling ourselves? Is it one that's like the lilies of the field, that all of your needs are going to be cared for? That God loves you, God cares for you, and if we would just relinquish a little bit of control, if we would just be more uh, aware of the person on the side of the road that needs our help, if we would just be more in tune with the rhythms of creation, maybe we could find God there. In the bruised, in the beaten, in the hurt. Um, in those places where uh, there is extreme environmental degradation and subjugation. Maybe it's there where the hope is. Uh, I've been watching too many environmental documentaries. There's some great ones. I put them in the bulletin. So if you want resources to read or things to, um, to watch, there, a lot of them are on Netflix or Amazon. And uh, some of them can be pretty depressing, Right? Like, you know, when we realize the state of the world and, you know, the environment that we all share, because um, there might be borders of countries, but we all share the same home, um, it, can, it can be pre- the picture of our global situation can, can look pre- pretty bleak. But what if Christians were the ones to find hope in those places where other people don't? When we see things, um, when we see somebody beaten and bruised, that's actually where we find God. And that extends not only to people, but to creation and the environment. That, you know, there is hope, and we can turn this thing around. We have to understand that God is green, and we should be too. Let's pray.